This is the Gridley Wave Network. Greystock. Jessum is next on the Gridley Wave Network.
the Chicago Bureau of the Bosnian Blade. Dateline Jesu. A Panthan Press Production. For fans of Edgar Rice Burroughs and Pulp Adventure. Here's your host, Elmo. Welcome to show number 22. That opening music that you heard was uh, from a song called A Tribe of One by Dr. Awkward, which I got off the Podsafe Music Network. And then, of course, I added my own collection of Tarzan yodels from over the years. And I thought the combination made kind of an interesting mix, and I wanted to play it for you. Today we have a discussion of early science fiction in pulp magazines. And this discussion comes from uh, the WindyCon that I attended uh, last month. And the main speaker here is Robert Weinberg, who is a writer and a uh, editor and collector. His website mentions that over the years he's written 16 novels, 16 nonfiction books, and edited over over a hundred anthologies. And for the past several years, he's been writing comic books, including uh, an X-Men uh, title called Cable, and his own creation for Marvel, Nightside. Amazing was the first all-science fiction magazine. Okay, There were a few magazines before Amazing that published science fiction in them, that's kind of specialized in them. Thrill Book in 1919 called itself an all-different magazine. And in those days, different kind of meant science fiction, but it also meant ghost stories and stories about um, psychic communication with people, you know, and everything like that. So it wasn't really a science fiction magazine. And then Weird Tales started in 1923, and that published strangely enough, a lot of science fiction. But it also was a magazine aimed at weird fiction, H.P. Lovecraft, and there was, you know, not only Lovecraft, who was kind of science fiction-y, but a lot of people are just wrote horror stories. So Amazing was the first all-science fiction magazine. That was in 1926. But the pulps had started at, at, exactly at the turn of the century with Argosy, Golden Argosy became Argosy Magazine, and the guy who started him was um, Frank Munsey, and he had came up with the idea that up to that time all magazines were slick magazines. Slick magazines are like life and look, and they had slick paper, and they were expensive. They cost a quarter, and that sounds like, well, a quarter, you know, but in those days a quarter could buy you dinner. So not everybody could really afford to buy magazines and be well read. And Munsey said, you know, people buy magazines to read stuff, not to look at the slick pages and all the pictures, which is why they needed slick paper to reproduce artwork. And so he got the cheapest paper imaginable, which is wood pulp paper, and he decided to start publishing magazines on wood pulp paper. And that's why pulp magazines were called pulp magazines, because they used this real cheap paper. And he actually didn't pay that badly at first. So 
popes weren't derogatory early on. They were derogatory more for the fact that they were cheap, so they sold to the common people. And so the people that were buying the slicks had more money, were kind of, ah, oh, they buy pulp magazines, you know, so they became derogatory. But they became very, very popular. Munsey became incredibly rich. He ended up owning, I think, 27 newspapers after a while, but all financed by his pulp magazines. And Argosy got, became, got up to where it was a weekly magazine. It was published every week. And it actually paid five cents a word for some of their better authors. And I have a lot of the papers. I'm a, the executor for the Argosy owners, and I have all their, a lot of their documents. And they would pay people like um, uh, a guy who wrote Jimmy Dale, I'm trying to remember his name, Frank Packard, who was a very popular author around 1910, 1911. I have contracts that they sent him where they guarantee that they would buy 250,000 words a year from him, whatever he wrote, at five cents a word. Now, that would be like somebody calling up Jack and saying, Jack, we like you to write for Omni, but for any magazine you can think of now, you know, um, God, are there any magazines? I mean, any magazines be, yeah, I mean, Reader's yeah. Digest calling Jack up and saying, oh, Jack, we'll pay you a dollar a word for everything you could write, you know, and we'll give you the contract for as long as you want. And that's what they offered him, and he would turn it down sometimes, you know, because he would get more money from other publishers. So these guys were extremely well paid. Later on, the pulps obviously got their reputation of not paying a lot, you know, when the Depression came along. But for a long time, they weren't that cheap. And a lot of early science fiction got published in pulp magazines. Now, not by... Wells or Verne, you know, Verne was already popular in France and was being published in France, and Wells was being published in magazines in England, though reprinted in the U.S. But many, many early science fiction writers, people you never hear of anymore, George Allen England and um, a bunch of others, I'm just going blank at the second, were all extremely popular before Amazing Stories started. And science fiction was actually, I mean, it just didn't start with amazing. You know, it started with these pulp magazines. It was kind of like the market form beforehand. And since Hugo Gernsback saw that science fiction was doing well with people like Ray Cummings, another, and George Allen England, and, um, you know, A. Hyatt Verrill, and a bunch of these other early writers, he said, I'm going to publish a magazine just of science fiction. And that's how science fiction kind of got its own little, unfortunate ghetto after a while because it started being published in its own magazine. And the magazines, the more popular magazines that published it kind of from time to time, started saying, well, we'll let Amazing and Gernsback and his crazy crew publish it. So that, that's a brief history of, of science fiction before, you know, it got into Amazing. It was actually pretty popular in, in other magazines. I mean, stories like <coughs> The Blind Spot by Homer Eon Flint and Austin Hall, you know, was extremely influ very, very popular, published in 1920 in, in All Story, 
I mean, it, it sold two or three hundred thousand copies in a magazine that was a weekly, and that was a hell of a lot of copies back in you know 1920. And you know, I've done a lot of research on writers written biographies. Louis L'Amour read the Blind Spot in 1920, and then 50 years later, he wrote his version of the Blind Spot, The Haunted Mesa which if you read the two books, you could say, boy, he should have been arrested for plagiarism, <laughs> you know? Haunted Mesa is actually a straight science fiction novel about invaders from another dimension coming in to the uh, Mesa, you know, in Arizona. It's supposedly haunted, but it's a gateway to another universe, you know, exactly the same as The Blind Spot. And, and Louis actually published... Um, a list of all of his reading. He was obsessive that way. And in 1920, you know, he had the blind spot down there. So he had read it. You know, didn't, I wasn't corresponding with him at the time, so never asked him. It should have. Like now, the readers of pulp magazines, I mean, you know, there's so many, not misconceptions, but kind of stories that have grown up about, like, what fiction was like way back then. Most of the covers were like a beautiful woman wearing parasols or strolling in the park because their readership was mostly women. You know, women have always been, have read more than men. And the audience in those days, they figured, was women. And men, they figured, oh, they're going to come in just for the story. They don't have to be attracted by the covers. But we got to get the women and so up until like 1920, almost all the covers were women-oriented, you know, like romance-type-oriented covers. In the 20s, you started getting more and more action covers. You know, then by the 30s, which is when they really spread out and specialized in innumerable topics, you know, like Zeppelin stories and air stories. And then you got, I mean, Zeppelin stories had incredible covers with Zeppelins on them. <laughs> And the science fiction magazines always had pretty wild science fiction covers. But early on, they were the early pulps. You know, magazines like Adventure, you know, started in 1910, and a lot of the covers, are, you would not guess that it's an adventure magazine. It looks like a women's romance magazine. And not to be stereotyped, you know, women, but in those days, that was kind of, they were looking for romantic fiction to read. Publishers kind of really try to get them to buy the magazine. I wanted to break in and make a quick comment here uh, because what Bob is saying, I never really thought about. But if you look at the All Story 1912 cover for Tarzan of the Apes, it really does sort of look like a modern day romance novel. It has, uh, even in, in the lower corner it has a romance of the jungle and i can see that cover as being designed to attract women readers that's just my two cents what what would one of them be worth today uh one in good shape believe it or not not a lot okay it depends i mean i collect a lot of those magazines now edgar rice burroughs is like the most famous author in the science fiction field kind of come out of the pulps. Uh, the first issue of Argosy that published Tarzan of the Apes, 
okay, was published complete in one issue of Argosy, 1912. And it has a picture of Tarzan on the cover. And the whole novel is in one issue, along with short stories and some other things. That recently sold at auction a nice copy of it for $67,000. The issue that came out the next month, that was October 1912. Yeah. If you wanted to buy November 1912, which you know, I don't know how often it comes up, you could probably get it for 10 bucks. Wow. Okay. It's just, you know, the, the key issues are worth a lot, but the issues that don't have anything in them, you know, who wants them? You know, the only people that buy those early issues are Burroughs collectors or fanatical science fiction fans. Burroughs collectors, it seems like, usually have a lot of money. And that issue is really rare. I mean, it's probably like five nice copies of it known to exist. So when one comes up for sale, people fight together. <laughs> An awful lot of the major pulp magazines, at least in science fiction, but even in other fields too, are being put on microfilm. You know, now a lot of them are being put on the internet. Yeah, so um, that'll be reissued too. Yeah, and a lot of small publishers are publishing, you know, lots of magazines, a lot of which probably shouldn't even be republished, but <laughs> people want to read them. You know, want to have copies of. Them. You know, most of the great science fiction that they publish has been reprinted someplace or another. If not, University of Nebraska, I will put a plug in for them. Bison Books, I think of there. Yeah. They've been reprinting a lot of really neat stuff. You know, they, they really have. And uh, this is this is the greatest time to be a fan. You know, I'm kind of annoyed that I'm so old that really, I mean, stuff that I look for all my life, okay, I've been collecting for 50 years. And stuff I looked for that I heard about when I was like 15, and I could never find stuff in like Argosy from 1912 or 1913. And now you can buy in a trade paperback for 7.95 or 10.95. And you know I spent 40 years looking for the damn stuff, and I have it. Empire of the Air. If anybody wants to read a great novel, one of the great early science fiction novels by George Allen England. It's called Empire of the Air. And it was just reprinted uh, two months ago by Black Dog Books. You can buy it on the internet. In, in this story, this, the guy is trying to set the altitude record. He's an airplane flyer, like in 1907. So he's at a, I think it's in Chicago, and he's flying at this airfield, and he's going up. He's going to set their altitude record by going up to 29,000 feet. Yeah, I know, and, and like, you know, he's wearing protective clothing, and he has an oxygen bottle by his side. I mean, there's no mask, no nothing. I'm reading this thing. This is like nuts. Breathing, breathing through a tube attached yeah. to an oxygen bottle. Yeah, you know, and, and he has one of these coats on. Yeah, and he's going to set the, the record, and he disappears at 29,000 feet. He just vanishes, and nobody can tell what's happened. And it turns out that Earth has been invaded by aliens from the fourth dimension and also from another galaxy that are four-dimensional beings. They pull them into the fourth dimension. And then, and they're like giant, when they appear in our dimension, they're like giant globes. Something right out of Flatland, actually, I think. And they attack the Earth 
and you know, the earth is completely decimated by these creatures, and mankind is going to be destroyed. They want the earth without people on it, and we're going to be destroyed, except that this guy somehow communicates meant by mental telepathy from the other dimension with an astronomer and tells him that these aliens are there, and five other people have to fly up an airplane to 29,000 feet and they'll be transported into the other dimension where they could fight the aliens. And that kind of happens and the aliens get scared off and leave the Earth. And it's, you know, really cornball, but at the same time, this is 1907 that it appeared. And the alien menace is, is better than War of the World, you know. And this thing was, I have two parts of the serial. And let me tell you, it took me 50 years to find those two parts in decent condition. Of course, I wasn't willing to pay maybe like $1,000 each for them, but, you know, I was willing to pay a reasonable sum. But I had heard about this novel all my life. It had never been reprinted. You know, it, for some reason, George Allen England is famous. And he wrote a bunch of things that were reprinted. Darkness and Dawn, this famous series that was reprinted a bunch of times. But this novel was never reprinted until a fan two months ago found some copies of the magazine and published it as a as a as a book. Now, are all these things fall into the public domain? Oh, everything before 1923 is in public domain. I'm kind of surprised to hear about a story that incorporates multi-dimensional beings that early. Is, is, that, yeah, the, is that the first one? That's know? the first one that anybody has ever been able to come up with, you know, that I've ever heard, and I, like I said, I was thrilled to read it. When I read it, I say, wow, this is really, you know, he, mathematically, I, my background is in mathematics, and math, mathematically, he was fairly accurate in talking about that they would not have to travel at all in the three dimensions. If they're four-dimensional, you can stay just in the fourth dimension and kind of go through all those back doors of reality, kind of, to move around and... He doesn't. Yeah, he, do, he doesn't ex exactly explain how they were, how these big globes with no arms, and no hands, were burning London and New York City. Okay, I just, I don't know. That that part, he kind of said, oh, they're destroying the city. I'm thinking maybe they were kind of just descending on the ha on the things and smashing well, the buildings. Well, short, short, short stories uh, called the damn thing. Damn, that, that was invisible. Right, invisible. Yeah. Yeah. Here, here, here! They're from another dimension. They even say we're from another galaxy, and we're leaving. You know, you made us leave. You know, you lousy humans. <laughs> Very unhappy at the end. Now, getting back to like straight science fiction for a minute. You know, printed science fiction. The other thing I want to mention was. There's a book called The Battle of Dorking, which you could probably find on the internet as well. And that was published in the 19th century in England. And it was kind of like a first-person account of the invasion of England by Germany in 1885 or something, but the book was written in 1865. So it's actually... Harry Turtledove in the 19th century, kind of, really. And it was so incredibly popular, this one short novel, The Battle of Dorking, it's hard to read now, but it was, you know, first person, you know, oh, they came over by the boats and we, you know, 
bought them here and we bought them there. And it was done like historical, you know, perspective. That afterwards there was dozens of other sequels published to it because it was all in those days publishing was really the wild, wild west. And you know, somebody wrote a novel. Well, you wrote an unauthorized sequel. Who cares as long as you made some money? You know that type of thing. And there's Mrs. Smith at the Battle of Dorking, and Joe, Joe, you know, Joe Jones remembers the Battle of Dorking, and the Battle of Dorking returns, something like that. But there was like another 20 or 30 Battle of Dorking stories that was so popular that it really started like this whole, you know, we ne it never got recognized as alternate futures, but it was like alternate future novels about England being invaded, and they were incredibly popular in the 19th century. And then Fred Jane, who later went on to fame as Jane, for Jane Ships, he wrote two science fiction novels very similar to the Battle of Dorking that you can also find probably on the internet. And um, also, you know, future war novels became incredibly, incredibly popular in England because even in the, like the 1880s, 1890s, there was always, you know, England was the empire, but the Germans and the Belgians and everybody else and the French, of course, were kind of threatening the empire. And so sooner or later they knew something was going to happen. And so there was a lot of science fiction actually published in England other than Wells and Verne, of course, was in France. But Wells, you know, you, you think, boy, you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Wells. And he really defined a lot of science fiction with his novels. But you kind of think, how did this guy get things like The Time Machine and War of the Worlds published? You know what I mean? If it was so God-amazing, revolutionary, you know, different, how come somebody published them? You know, now you write something amazing and different. Nobody wants to look at you. You know, when those days they published them, well, that's because there was a lot of science fiction already being published, and Wells was just really good at it. You know, and so that, that, that's kind of what people kind of forget. Unfortunately, we've forgotten all the other science fiction writers, and, and Wells remains. At, believe it or not, I think there was actually a, a, a greater respect for science that we kind of lost. Um, you know, the one thing with the pulps is that they did have certain things that they wanted to sell, and one of them was action. And so they kind of, you know, when people were writing stories for them, they say, well, make sure there's enough action. They didn't say to the guys, make sure there's enough science. And so, you know, later on, Hugo Gernsback, who was you know, very heavily involved in science and radio and television, things like that. His early stuff in Amazing Stories was pretty scientifically accurate, so much so that you could fall asleep reading it, you know, because people would copy textbooks, like, into their story. But the scientific romance, which is what the English were writing, and especially the pulp writers, you know, the you know Edgar Rice Burroughs never opened a textbook. You know, not as an entire life, I don't think. And his Mars, you know, of course, everybody knows that, like, Tarzan, the original draft, had tigers in Africa. Yep. So, you know, he wasn't real up on... He wasn't up on the biology. Uh, yeah, or keeping, 
you know, real accurate in one of his storytelling. But, you know, they want them to tell a good story. So that's where science fiction kind of, scientific romance is where kind of science fiction got a bad name for being scientifically inaccurate. Science fiction author Jack McDevitt was also on this panel, and uh, you've heard a little bit of comments here and there from him. Here's, here's a few more. Yeah, you know, it's, it's hard to get hold of what it must have been like to be alive in the latter part of the 19th century. Uh, you, you, because you get so much, much of it from you know, the fiction that you read, and you don't know how, how, how close that is to reality. But you have to, you know, I think there was kind of a, a, an innocent fascination at that point with science. Cities were becoming illuminated for the first time. Telephone breaks in. Uh, you, know, the, you were getting real... We're sort of a, we're accustomed to being stowed under by new scientific development so much so we don't even pay attention to it anymore. I mean, you can't keep trying. Yeah. Every time we're in the Circuit City, there's all kinds of stuff in there to replace the stuff last week. Blue, you know, we blue disc. Yeah, but with them, there was the light. The first scientific detective shows up mm-hmm. in London. You know, it's uh, exactly. so it, it's easy to understand that you know there was a there was a different kind of science fiction that they would have been writing that they would, for example, would not have seen the dark science, the dark side of science. The, the, the sense that, well, maybe it's, uh, it's, it's, there's some knowledge that would be better if we didn't get, you know, like nuclear stuff, for example. Um, so, it, it, you know, you get, you get the sense of a different age. And I have a feeling, I, I, I have to confess, I, haven't, I just haven't had a chance to read these kinds of things. They're only, the, the ones that I've read prior to, let's say, 1920, mostly the major people like Wells. I've read a lot of Wells in short fiction. And there isn't, you know, even despite Wells has a reputation for being a pessimist and gloomy, and yet when you read this stuff, there's kind of a, there's, a, there's almost a lightness to it, uh, a sense of, you know, sailing into the, into the horizon somewhere. Uh, you know, even, you know, some of this grimmery, I, I know one of my favorite ones is, a, and I can't remember the name of the short story, but he's got um, fighter planes that kind of run people down. They got, they, they've got spears or something, as I recall. They, you know, they're, they just, you know, kind of just sail down. It's, it's absolutely mad, but there's this lightness of being. I don't know if I got the right word or not. You do not feel that if we stay with science that anything really serious is going to happen. We'll be all right as long as we maintain a scientific mindset. And there's a sense of a sun coming up somewhere. You didn't know what was coming, and you were optimistic. You know, science really was optimistic up until... I suspect the great, I don't know, World, you know, not, War, I, yeah, World War I did a lot of it, and then the Great Depression, I think, kind of capped it all. Well, it, actually, there was a mindset in the latter part of the 19th century that the European world, at least, was too smart to fight a major war, that the, the war was done, mm-hmm. war was over, and we were headed into, the, you know, like Churchill's line, into a bright, sunny upland. <laughs> That's going to do it for show 22. Thanks for joining us. And thanks to Robert Weinberg and Jack McDevitt for their comments at WindyCon and allowing me to record them. Thanks to the Podsafe Music Network and Dr. Awkward for that opening music, which I mixed up a little bit with Tarzan and uh, sound bites from various movies.
This is Elmo from the Barsoomian Blade Bureau in Chicago, signing off. You know, the only people that buy those early issues are Burroughs collectors or fanatical science fiction fans. Burroughs collectors, it seems like, usually have a lot of money.